This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come together. Well, welcome everyone to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and uh, um, with uh, with me in, in, in quarantine is uh, is Dr. Yego. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Going very well. Great to be here. Yeah, how's your quarantine school going down there from the basement of your Sycamore estate? <laughs> yeah, at the current moment, the uh, lesson plan is Minecraft, so... Um, <laughs> Uh, the kids are, they're hard at work, you know, they hate doing it, but, um, you know, they, they gotta do what they gotta do. Yeah. Preparing them for those real jobs in the future. Um, Hey, well, mining ore. uh (laughs) we are, we, and with us, we have a very special, um, we have very special guest today. We are kind of fangirling a bit over our, our guest and it is, um, Heath Hardage Lee, the author of League of Wives, the untold story of the women who took on the U.S. government to bring their husbands home. Welcome, Heath. Thank you for having me. This is a treat. Yeah, we're really, we're really excited. And, uh, you know, it's usually uh, uh, us just talking to each other about the <laughs> ridiculous ideas we have sometimes on uh, over movies or other uh um, uh, topics, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're happy to have you, um, um, with us. So what are, what are you, um, tell us what you're, tell us what you're working on currently. Well, currently I am working on, uh, a new biography of Pat Nixon, first lady Pat Nixon, who has not had really a real biography in about 30 years. Her daughter, Julie Eisenhower, wrote a a wonderful memoir of her mother. And then there's just been trash, you know, like the lonely lady of San Clemente, just, you know, tabloidy kind of stuff. So this Mm. is going to be the first real in-depth The lonely lady of of San Clemente, that was the title. (laughs) Can you believe that title? That is so awful. I mean, there's a couple, oh, and then there's embattled first lady. I mean, gee, if you didn't have a political position before, I mean, it's so obvious. Like, let's not be so leading with our titles. Um, No objectivity (laughs) there. So it's going to be fun to kind of flip the script on Pat Nixon. He was not at all as the press portrayed her. Very different. So that is keeping me very, very busy and then working on uh, the script for League of Wives uh, for the movie that's hopefully going to film one day when the pandemic maybe is over or at least uh, vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. Well, that we're going to get we're going right, to get to right. all that. Um, so. Yeah, this sweet. Our Nixon, real quick, we uh, in our sister podcast. Whenever we cover uh, the movie Nixon, we definitely will have to uh, have the book of the week be. Uh, oh yeah, be your upcoming. I, want to, <laughs> I am so fan. I am fanboying with Napalm in the morning because I love that podcast. <laughs> so you please have me on because the Pat Nixon stereotype, the, the plastic Pat, it's total BS. It's not right. I mean, it's, it was the opposite. <laughs> I will come smash those stereotypes. Wow! That, so please call me. Yeah, you. We I will. I would love it. <laughs> oh, that that would be awesome. Definitely got to do that. Yeah, cool. yeah, that'll that'll be fun. Uh, yeah, careful what you wish for, Heath. Um, <laughs> <laughs> True. 
so this no i seriously would love it i mean for for our readers who don't know they really they really need to go out and uh um get a copy uh, heath was kind, kind enough to send me one from um, saint martin's but the league of wives this untold story of these women who brought their pow husbands home um it's a it's a really unique mix of both sort of um history from women's perspective um and and really puts name and face on these individuals um and but also I mean, you've managed to blend um, academic deep research with like a, a very engaging um, style of writing. So I uh, kudos. It's 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 such a such an accomplishment, and uh, and I'm not shocked that it's now beloved by Hollywood. So how did you um, how did you get into how how did this idea uh, to write this fall in your lap? Sure. Well, thank you for those kind words. It's been, it is, it's a great story and it was just kind of lying around. It was funny, Both both the books I've written have been sort of look in your backyard archive, you know, sort of stories. And, and I always say archives are sexy. They're juicy. They have wonderful stories and people don't use them enough. Um, I was trained in museum work, I worked for many years with in historic houses and also civil rights museums. Yeah, museum um, education so, and preservation is a is was your. Where, where are some of the places you worked? Yes, it, it's been a really interesting career. But this was one of my former careers, but really where I started after teaching, like you guys, I, I taught for three years and was like, get me out of here because it was teenagers, <laughs> not for me. So did that, got out was like, put me in the museum ivory tower, please, which was great. Mm -hmm. So that was a better fit. Um, so yes, education and preservation. So I started at, at the Levine Museum of New, the New South in Charlotte, which was all about the New South, you know, post-war, post-Civil War, 1865, yes. a lot of civil rights history, a lot of women's history. I actually started their women's history program. I mean, at this time in the 90s, you know, women's history still was kind of in its infancy. So I was able to do a lot with that. Um, I actually worked in Des Moines, Iowa at Salisbury House, which was a 1920s house. So I got to do all the cool 20s stuff. I worked oh, nice. at Stratford Hall, Robert E. Lee's um, boyhood home. So lots of, you know, historic houses civil rights museums, and then I've done a lot of independent curating. My last one was the League of Wives exhibit, which I did for Senator Bob Dole's Political Institute in Lawrence, Kansas. So it's been, you know, very diverse and, and interesting, but that all led me yeah. to spend a lot of time in archives. And that's where I found the League of Wives story was, um, it started with the papers of Phyllis Galanti. Uh, this was at Virginia Historical Society. Oh, she's Phyllis amazing. was actually... Isn't she cool? She was a good friend of my mother's. They were in book club really? for 30 years together. Yeah. I knew the Galanis, she and her husband, Paul, growing up, but just vaguely, you know, as my parents' friends. And then I found her mm. papers when she died. My mother said Phyllis died unexpectedly. And then the people who worked at Virginia Historical, my friends on the staff, because I did a lot of part-time work there, said, Heath, you need to come look at these papers. They're kind of right up your alley. And I was like, oh, my God, this is an epic Vietnam War story. And and she had the bones of it, you know, like her husband, Paul, was a POW shot down in 65. And she spent years lobbying to get him back. So it was sort of a detailed 
account through letters, papers, archival documents of what happened. And that led me all across the country to all the women in the book, not all, but actually, you know, the major players. And then I found others. So that's kind of how it started. So the papers, those led you to the, to, to create this exhibit. And then the book came out of that. Is that where the, how it. It, It's a weird, it was a weird kind of fusion. Um, the, but I had sold the book before I did the exhibit to St. Martin's and, but I knew because I was interviewing all these women and they were giving me like boxes of stuff that of course their kids, as you know, we talked earlier, Eric, your kids think you're stupid and know nothing <laughs> and that nothing you have is worth anything. No. So the kids were throwing all the artifacts out, like all their diary. We don't want this mom, you know, your clothes, your diaries, your letters. Oh from man. Vietnam. Don't want it. Uh-huh. So these ladies were giving it to me. And as a, a curator, I was like, Oh my God, yeah. I should have gloves on handling this. But I knew I had to do an exhibit with it. I was like, this is obvious. And then the Dole Institute, um, a political institute in Kansas, I did a bunch of research there on Bob Dole's role in uh, with these POW MIA wives. And they they were so intrigued that they asked me to be uh, to be their fellow and curate an exhibit on the senator's sort of behalf about the women. And his role was, you know, a supportive role. But and they were so cool about letting do that. It wasn't about making Bob Dole look good. It was about how he supported these women in, in the POW MIA community. So the exhibit came about that way. You're pretty even-handed because I, I think is somewhere in your book you you highlight that like Dole was kind of patronizing, right? Or or even uh, like <laughs> did you have to yeah. did you have to play that down in the in the exhibit? We'll take that I, panel off. Yes, the exhibit does not have that so much. I mean, I love Bob Dole. I'm a huge fan, but you know, it's the time. Like right. Bob Dole was actually, you know, he wasn't as bad. There's a line in there. I know what you're thinking. It's the one where he's talking to, gosh, I think another. Oh, a general. He's saying oh, we need to keep these POW MIA wives under control. We don't want them to, like, go off the reservation or something that is so inappropriate, you know. And he calls them, like, the girls. And, you know, it's so patronizing. And Bob Dole just kind of plays along with it. He doesn't actually say that. But, you know, he was playing the political game to get them what they needed. Um, And the exhibit is really more about the women. So I do try politically... To, you call it the way it is. I mean, you know, you got to lay it out. And, and everybody shows their true character when you show, but you don't tell. So that's what I, I try to do. You did a lot of oral history for this book. Um, I counted more than 50 interviews. Um, yeah. How, how, tell, tell us about that uh, process. Did they introduce you to each other and then it kind of snowballed? Or how did, how did it work? Yeah, that's exactly how it worked. And I, I am trained in, you know, oral histories through through the Civil Rights Museum. I worked out in Charlotte. I, you know, was in my late 20s and I was like, this is the dumbest thing ever. It's so boring. I don't want to listen. You know, they made me go interview my grandmother, who was a very interesting <laughs> right. person. But I was like, oh, my God, I've heard these stories a million times. I'm so bored. So I was a very reluctant oral historian. But once I learned how important that was, you know, histories of those who their history is not written down. I became kind of a convert and I've used it as the basis for 
League of Wives, and it will certainly be the basis for the Pat Nixon book. Um, so important. But one interview, you know, and it took a while, this book took almost five years between the exhibit and the book to get done because of trust. You had to build trust with this group who sometimes in the press got burned. It took right. years. Some people would never speak to me. But once I got the trust of one person, they would refer me to somebody else. And then I had Phyllis's papers, which gave me kind of listed all the big players in the National League of Families, the POWMI organization. And, and that's how I also came up with the structure is I really focused on leaders in the National League because there are thousands of POWMI wives or were. So it would have been impossible to do it just that way. And it seemed random to just pick random people. So I tried to really focus on the leadership. Civil so Stockdale, Jane Denton, Phyllis, others. Um, and that seemed to be a good narrative structure to hold it together. Maybe it's worthwhile to to say to for our listeners to 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 give a give a bit of a context. So right, it's the Second Indochina War, the Vietnam War, and after sixty five, um, American servicemen were were captured in combat and held uh, as prisoners of war, and their wives were obviously distraught and uh, felt like that their government wasn't doing enough felt to, to, to free these men, um, that obviously the, the North Vietnamese government was, uh, was, was difficult to navigate uh, on that front. And so they, they formed the um, National League of POWMA Families. That, is that right? And uh, yeah. what year was that founded? So that was not founded until 1970. Um, they had, you know, all these regional organizations, as you know, before then. But it was June of 1970. It was incorporated in D.C. Right, but they, but they're so they're advocating um, before that, but then of course with the official uh, founding of that movement, and then um, putting and lobbying and putting pressure and diplomacy and media and uh, you know I, I was thinking of that 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 POW MIA um, flag that yeah. I had no idea that this you know what what amazing like marketing and like just uh, brilliant. And Brilliant who, marketing. And who would have thought, you know, and it's funny, if you see that flag, it seems like a, a lot of like kind of uh, men of a certain age, like kind of like the, you know, like support our troops, like that you didn't realize that these are, these are, these are women who created that. And that, that's this very yeah. patriotic, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's incredible. Yeah. That, that, and that flag, I think is something like, the number two flag in the world that's fought, you know, and it's it's one of the few that they do fly or, you know, government buildings all the time. I mean, it's had a huge impact. And the women were the ones that came up with the flag, you know, had a designer, worked with the flag, and then the National League presented it to Melvin Laird, the Secretary of Defense, to, you know, show, kind of just symbolize that support. One interesting note about that flag, though, the women... Sybil Stockdale, who's one of the real stars of the book, and others did not like the design because the POW's head is bowing down, kind of in compliance or in defeat. And they always thought it should be chin up, you know, that we right. should show that pride. So that was the criticism. Right. At this point, Sybil was not head of the league anymore, so she didn't have control over that. But there's always been a little version of not happy with the flag but regardless it took off like the pow bracelets did 
And that was something else the women didn't particularly care for. And it took off like wildfire. So, you know, you never know what's going to work. They both sure definitely are burned in people's minds as symbols of, of that war. Man. Yeah, that's um, on on Sybil on Sybil Stockdale. Um, do you want to just talk about she kind of gets into this leadership sort of role. Um, her husband, Jim, is a commanding officer in the Navy. Right. Um, and so so he has a kind of leadership position. She sort of ends up taking this leadership position. Do you want to just sort of talk about how that I don't know, how do those structures like lean on each other? Yes. That I found that really fascinating. The hierarchy. I, I have no mm-hmm. military connection, so it you know it took a while for me to even understand the whole military Byzantine sort of hierarchy format. But the way that it, it works, even today to some extent, but really in the sixties and before, is uh, Jim Stockdale was the senior naval officer who was a POW. He was the most senior one. So his position was her position on the home front with the ladies, you know, with the military wives, the POWMIA wives. So she reflected his position at home. He was in command at the Hanoi Hilton, you know, of all the Navy guys. They all fell in line under him. And the same happened with Sybil on the home front. And this is where the military can work really well because everybody knew their roles, knew what to do, and fell in line. There was no argument. That was is sort of just how it all would go if this ever happened. So they were sort of prepared for that structure. Sybil is the leader, the founder of this POWMI movement. For years, there was a lot of chatter about who founded it. I found it. No, I founded it. No. And so I spent a <laughs> lot of time straightening this out. Sybil is the one and only founder of the National League. Everyone else was a support person, you know, in a big way okay. sometimes. But she conceived of this. She started it in not really in 1967 and continued to lead that for years until she had a nervous breakdown and really needed to step away and let other people take over for a bit, which she did. But she always remained involved with it. Um, So Sybil is really the center of the book, and everybody else kind of um, revolves around her. Then there is Jane Denton on the East Coast, Louise Mulligan, Andrea Rander um, in Baltimore. There are others that are kind of her big supporters. They're right under her to help her. But Sybil really is the center of everything where it all kind of comes from. Is Sybil Sybil the one who um, she writes letters to women who have POW husbands across the branches. Is that, is that yeah. her strategy? That, to? That's one of her strategies. Yes. Really now remember the, the keep, well, the keep, we might want to talk about the keep quiet rule, which precedes yeah. all of yes. that. Yeah. What is the keep quiet policy? Yes. So the keep quiet policy. And again, for context, which I think it's good. You're, you know, you set the context with this work. Uh, you know, being starting really, it's even starts a little before, but say 65 to 75 when Saigon falls, this long 10 year war. Um, this war, and in previous wars too, there was something called the keep quiet policy that the government and the military sort of agreed upon, which was if you had a husband, son, brother that was a prisoner of war or missing in action. You were not allowed to say anything about it to anybody, to anyone outside your immediate family. In previous wars, World War II, the Korean War, 
POWs were cut for much shorter periods of time, you know, for months in some cases, maybe a year or two, which is a long time, but perhaps you could maintain that silence for that one. When we get to Vietnam, this is a totally different war. It does not work like that. A, nobody's obeying the Geneva Conventions at all, which at least were kind of sometimes, uh, you know, looked at as something we might want to do in World War II in Korea. But in Vietnam, forget the Geneva Conventions. They're just gone. Um, and the main thing being, these prisoners are kept for up to eight years. There's no way you can stay silent for that long. Sybil and her wives are told this repeatedly by the Lyndon Johnson administration. To, they are threatened. They are told their husbands will be probably executed if they speak out. What's the, what's the rationale? Why, why? The rationale is, if we should call it that, which I, I mean is laughable, is not laughable. I should back up and not be so snarky. But um, so Lyndon Johnson's administration, nobody was taking the time to study other cultures. You know, we're, we're not studying Southeast Asian culture to understand the Vietnamese, which I know you all will appreciate. Who, who needs to study other cultures? Oh, just go in there. Yeah. And, yeah. Wing it. Give them democracy. I say just wing it. Wing it. Wing yeah. it. They all want democracy from us. We are Americans. I mean, we're not going to let them hold an election, but like we want democracy. No, no we're going to have a puppet government. But yeah, oh my God. It's just, yeah, we could have a whole conversation about how screwed up this is. Like the ladies actually do go study, by the way, Southeast Asian culture intensely, communist governments, and they figure out surprise. That, you know, it doesn't work. The the whole strategy of just, well, obviously going in, taking over and trying to fix things since the French obviously did such a good job of that with uh, their rule. Um, we're in the French mode, but thinking we can always do better than the French. We'll go in and fix this situation. So the ladies, instead of going in and, you know, destroying everything, study the culture. And they realize that by, you know, the old sort of diplomacy that was used before, like this endless negotiation, it's not going to work. The Vietnamese care more about their independence than people dying. Like they are committed to that cause. We obviously are not as committed. The ladies realize that keeping quiet is killing everybody. And what will work in this culture is to embarrass them, to show that they are not observing the Geneva Conventions. They are not treating these men well. They are in fact torturing the men which the women know because they're coding secret letters to their husbands and they're telling them we're scared. Was the argument that this will, if you, if you talk about your husband being a POW, then that will get back and it will, he will get tortured or something, or it will be worse. Yes. Or is that what that was that the, the yes. logic? Yes, that's exactly right. That was the logic is they will probably execute them. They will take it out on them. If you go public with this information. So Sybil and the women sit with that for, you know, two two years and, and they they think, well, maybe they know what they're doing. Then they study the culture and they realize, no, what is going to save them is to go public with what they know and embarrass the North Vietnamese into compliance. And that is what works. But that is what the government is telling them not to do. And um, Sybil finally on her own goes to the San Diego Union newspaper and begins to tell people, she doesn't talk about the torture, but she says the North Vietnamese are not observing the Geneva Conventions and the world should know. 
And that is enough to set off the chain of events to um, help improve the torture over time, to, or not improve it, to get rid of it, better food, medicine, et cetera. But it takes a long time of them uh, going public with this. So so that's a long explanation, but that is, is, is what happens um, and how the women when the government can't figure it out, the women study history and they save lives by studying the history and the culture. Always a good idea. Free. A plug for the history majors from uh, Heath. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yes, you can save lives if you study history. It's true. This is good. I needed this uh, career reaffirmation. So uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's true. Seriously. It, this, this story will show you any history major that it's worth it i want to go i want to learn a little more about the um uh the kind of coding with the husbands and and whatnot and discussing um yeah because if if you go now to the hanoi hilton um from what i learned when i i saw the all the uh, american pow's are treated very well and look like they're having a lot of fun playing football <laughs> and card games and yes. um so so why? So why were the husbands oh, lying and about all that and not not telling their wives what a great time they were having? Uh, and no, I'm just kidding. But how how did the how did they work out this sort of coding system um, with their wives? How did the letter process work um, and everything? Yes. Well, first the Hanoi Hilton. I've seen all the plaques and descriptions and the pictures. I was, as I told um, Eric a while ago, I was supposed to go lead a trip to Vietnam in March, but the coronavirus kind of messed that up. So I have not been able to go. Was your friend's name COVID? Yes, it was <laughs> my friend COVID that kind of ruined that trip for me. And I'm still very angry about that. Yes, I was going to leave my kids for three <laughs> weeks. Oh my God. It was going to be amazing. Hanoi, yeah. <laughs> then anger what? And it all got taken away. Uh, so I'm still bitter nah. about that. Um, but the coding and the plaques, which you have seen, and you can tell right. us maybe a little more about the special guest, I believe is what they call them, right? Isn't that the sort of the propaganda line that's still at the Hanoi Hilton? It's been like 12 years, but I can't, so I can't remember that exactly, but uh, yes. Yeah, there's certain, a euphemism, I forget, yeah. something like that. Yeah. There's yeah. a euphemism, and then John McCain, their special friend, you know, they have that whole you know, monument. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. the coding, the co and, I, and I did, okay, so the coding is the women are taught, not all the women, but select women, Sybil Stockdale, Jane Denton, Phyllis Galanti, are kind of recruited by naval intelligence to learn how to code these secret letters to their husbands okay. in the Hanoi Hilton. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. amazingly, the North Vietnamese never figure out what they're doing, which I think is amazing that they don't figure it out. They would have executed them, I'm sure, if they had figured that out. But thank God they don't. Mm -hmm. um, they, it, a lot of it is pretty simple stuff. It's not super high tech. It's, you know, invisible ink that is activated when you pee on it. That's like the main way that a lot of it works, where they, they have triggers in the letters, like weird things the women will say that make them think, oh, I need to soak this letter in water or urine, and then the message comes up. So, um, for instance, Sybil Stockdale sends a photo to Jim, a picture of, of someone who kind of looks like his mother swimming in the ocean. She knows Jim would know, A, it's not his mother, and B, she would never swim in the ocean. And underneath it, she says, all, she, all your mother needs is a good soak. So he's mm. like, oh, 
You know, right. he has a lot of time to think in solitary confinement. So he puts it in water or in urine, actually, in his case, and the message comes up. And then you dry it out, you write between the lines. Now, there is a letter number coding system. And because the POWMI community has gotten very upset before, even though this has all been declassified like years ago, they really told me all said, please don't go in in depth on how this works. So I made that decision not to out of respect for that community. It is all there if you want to find it. The CIA website has all kinds of stuff about it, but it's a letter and number system and it is still used. The basis of the coding is still used. So I, I saw the logic, like we don't need to give that away in depth. Um, so I just kind of in general terms explained how it worked. Mm -hmm. um, and my mm -hmm. exhibit has examples of it. We actually have some, a lot of the letter coded letters and sort of show you in a very broad way how that works. Okay. But it was pretty okay. simple stuff. It wasn't super sophisticated, but it did take time and a lot of emotional energy for the wives to learn it and do it successfully. Right. It would wear them out when they wrote those letters. So, so I mean, there's, there, there's sort of several factors at work, at least on these, on some of these women in the sense that they have sort of normal norms of, you know, that they're supposed to adhere to, um, about sort of second class citizen and, you know, just being, um, you know, knowing their place and not being maybe taking the, let the, let those in charge, uh, handle things. But then, then a military chain of command, which is very, you know, rigorous and like, you don't, you follow orders and the orders are to, you know, keep quiet. And, um, Right. Did did they did they wrestle with this like because a lot of these are very you know they come from like long lines of sort of military families and very conservative many of them like was it hard for them to like become activists really like almost mm -hmm. protesters yes yes well and that's why I love this story because these are your most unlikely activists you know they are really taught to toe the line and it took a huge amount of courage and for them to just say, screw you, Lyndon Johnson, we're going to do what we want. Like, that was amazing and so cool. Um, but yes, it was very difficult and some more than others. And I, I did see some interesting regional differences in this, like Sybil in California and then Louise Mulligan, one of the most strident activists from Virginia Beach was, they, these two were both New Englanders and not to stereotype New Englanders, but the women there, even in the 60s, are pretty forthright. They don't put up with any BS. They don't suffer fools gladly at all. The Southern women, which I'm a Southern woman, I'm a Virginian, the Virginians like Phyllis and Jane Denton are much more diplomatic. And, and they get results that way too, but they sugarcoat a lot more. And I think in some cases, not, not with Phyllis, but Jane, she put up with some of this longer, I think, because she was trying to be diplomatic and remain in the military by following the protocols. But soon even Jane sees this is not working. And so then they, they all get on board with a much more strident model that really parallels the women that I talk about, the peace activists on the other side, who are very strident, very forceful. And these are exactly the women that the POW wives, MI wives, don't want to be like. But they all end up kind of using that approach because no one is listening. They have to scream it yeah. and they have to do it in a group format. The individual appeal doesn't work. The power of the group and a strident approach 
that works over time with a little diplomacy thrown in there too. That also can work. Um, so I talk a lot about that in the book about these kind of different approaches. Um, but as a group, it really works quite well. When institutions are are held up as um, lacking in the very things they profess to um, be about and to believe in, whether it's the North Vietnamese or whether it's the um, sort of U.S. and its aims, like it, it's uh, that's um, speaking truth to power is not um, is that something that um, institutions are happy about? But but in, at a certain level, they no. can't um, they can't deny. What was it like over administrations? Was it there seemed to be a noted shift between the Johnson and Nixon. Did that have anything to do with the administration itself, or was that the the, the tide of history moving, and whoever would have been elected uh, in the 70s would have probably had to have dealt with this issue? Like, wh- where do you where do you land on that? Yeah, and I found that very interesting, because I'm, I'm 50, so I was born in 69, so no consciousness of this war. Always wondered in college, why aren't they teaching Vietnam? Like, why? I don't understand. And it's because we lost and nobody wanted to talk about it. So that, but I always wondered when I was studying myself, I was a history major, why we weren't talking about this. So we don't like to don't talk worry, about Don't worry, we have Rambo weird. first blood. We don't need Yeah, right, right. The, that's <laughs> another one y'all have got to do on the napalm. And oh, it's done. It's up there. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, I'm going to have to li- I've missed that one. Cause that's the Did we post that one yet? Or is that what just in the, in the can? No, that's up there. That's up there. Yeah. It's a, yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. And uh, First Blood Part Two coming soon. Yeah, coming soon. Oh, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. The American narrative about this, as you know, hilarious. Like, not what Sorry to distract you. At all. <laughs> no, no. That's, that's interesting. I, yeah. I'm going to go back and listen to that. Okay, so remind me again. Now I'm distracted. Oh, the transfer of administrations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, I'm thinking about Sylvester Stallone now and how old he is, so I'm getting really distracted. (laughs) Okay, so administrations. um, Nixon versus LBJ. Okay, so in the book, again, I try to keep my political views out, but I'm reflecting what the wives think, which is they absolutely despise Johnson. And they love Nixon for the most part. This is because Johnson, of course, really tries to enforce keep quiet and because he's horrible to women and just thinks they're idiots and won't meet with any of these women despite their pleas. So when he dies, they all have a few GMTs and are really psyched about that. So, I mean, (laughs) they were thrilled. When Nixon comes in, Nixon is changed to them. He represents change. And remember, these women are conservative military wives. Mm -hmm. They are what Nixon calls in a speech later, the silent majority. They are his people. This is his Mm -hmm. group. And so there is a mutual alignment of goals that happily works out here. And I do think Nixon, you know, he's a a World War II vet. He was Navy, very pro-military. I think he does have a natural sympathy here. But I think he also knows he needs these women. Ronald Reagan, in fact, the governor of California, is the first one to say, you better get on board with these women or they will eat you alive. I mean, he's been warned that he needs to pay attention to them. They are a significant voting block. And that whole military community is a huge block he wants. So there's this mutual alignment of goals. Sybil Stockdale says in her diary, 
you know, this quote I love, dark, dark days under the Johnson administration, sunny days under Nixon, which is kind of a, <laughs> a funny image to me. You know, I don't usually yeah. think about yeah. Nixon. But in this case, it really was true because Nixon gives them, the women have already gone public. That's their idea. E- even to this day, the former, some of the former people in that administration have tried to take credit for what the women did. I won't name names, but one person in particular, I was like, no, no, that's, that's not Is what it Pat Robertson? The whip. Uh, no, I didn't. No, he didn't even. No, he didn't surface in my interviews. I won't name any names. Okay. I, I was I was thinking I was thinking one thing I like about your book is that it it problematizes like an, a, a too simple narrative that that progressives often have about about the war like we love they love their JFKs or the but like you like that you can't blame Nixon for World War for for the the Vietnam War like and 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 it, this can't. this I like that this no. makes it a much more complicated tale. Well, I wonder if the wives. Uh if they uh, had known Nixon was sabotaging the peace talks in 68, uh, would have had a different opinion of him. But There were some other things Rude. going on. I will admit, <laughs> I will admit that, and Kissinger, and I did interview Kissinger for this book, and it was funny. He's such a diplomat. I mean, he would not tell me anything. I asked about that and other stuff. He's so skillful at turning the conversation. He's diplomat, you know? Um, he blamed it, and of course Nixon blamed it, and I do think this was true in large part on the Vietnamese who would not come to the negotiating table. You remember how long it took them to agree just on the shape of the table. I mean, they did not care how long this damn thing went on or how many people died. They did not care because they wanted their independence. And they knew the longer this drew, longer this drug on, the less the willingness to fight among the Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were much, much so smarter. Speaking than of we neg- were negotiators, and uh, um, I was hoping we'd get a Kissinger impression out of you, Heath. Yeah, your 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 Kissinger What's impression. That? I was hoping we'd get a Kissinger impression out of you. Oh my God! <laughs> oh, why would you ask me such things? You should not ask me this. I mean, I asked him some really bad, or not bad, Tough. some probing yeah. questions. He definitely did not like, but he kind of laughed. He's very charming. That's how he gets away with this, you know? So, um, but yeah, I asked him and he, but he did say, he goes, those North Vietnamese, they are just bastards, (laughs) bastards. So (laughs) that part was awesome. I was like, you know, and I put that (laughs) Yeah. So, and I think they were extremely, I mean, there's no doubt they were impossible to deal with. Uh, Mm-hmm. But to to your point, Matt, yeah, Nixon, there there's some evidence about yeah that too. So this particular narrative, I didn't get way into that. Yeah, but, that could have um, been. Mm-hmm. But in the end, that could have made it more longer, more complicated. And I will say that there were a number of wives that did not like Nixon, including Jane Denton, who is the most conservative wife of them all. She applies to be a delegate for the Miami Democratic. Yeah, she's like hanging out with Quaker Quakers, right? Go, like she's seriously Quakers. Conservative. Oh yeah, yeah. Seriously, and then she's hanging out with the left wing Catholics. You know the Berrigan brothers. So there, it's very complicated. Allegiances get really murky, um, and a lot of the women split off and form a group, another group for McGovern. So you know there. They are just sick of the word. They don't even care at the end. He's in charge. They just want it to be over. I was gonna, 
Oh, so they're they're like at the bed in with Lennon and uh, Ono, right? Uh, they... Pretty much, Jane Denton. Oh yeah, a lot of them, and particularly like Valerie Kushner is one. She would have totally been there. She stumped for McGovern. I mean, she was one of his opening speakers, one of the POW wives that was very active in the National League because mm-hmm. she had had it by the end. So right. the political allegiance to Nixon towards the end is starting to fray, and then he ends the war and done. Um, that's how it one of the one of the really enigmatic figures figures in your in your book is uh, Phyllis Galanti. Um, you know this. The t- tell us a bit about like our, our listeners. This incredible story. This someone who uses your her college French. You know, um, to to you know to oh, to, yeah. to work with the Charge d'Affaires in in Stockholm to 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 communicate um, with the North Vietnamese. Like, yeah, tell a little about her story. It's really, it fascinates me. Isn't, oh, and she, you know, again, Phyllis, as I knew, you know, she's beautiful, blonde lady I knew growing up, just vaguely. She's on the cover of the book, in sort of the middle of the, of the book. Um, very demure. She just, she said, I just want to be a housewife. Very shy. Was a college French major, but was too shy to use her French to teach. And then when her husband, Paul, is shot down and they're young married, no kids, you know, they've only been married a few years, she just becomes a tiger. She becomes known as fearless Phyllis across Virginia. She could have won any political office at that time in the 70s had she chosen to run. Even being a woman at that time, people said she could have been governor, you know, if she wanted to, which she had no interest in. But she has to change her whole DNA from this shy, retiring person into a diplomat, an international spy, a lobbyist for the love of her husband, you know, because she wants him home. And it is fascinating how she eventually goes to Stockholm with literally tons of letters, petitions, begging for the re- release of the POWs, which, you know, they proceed in Paris and in Stockholm to dump on the front door of the North Vietnamese embassy and block the door with these, which makes for great television. Wow, yeah. And that's what all the wives figure out, too, is the PR includes great TV, where they're in Paris, they're in Stockholm, begging for an audience with the North Vietnamese diplomats, and they're turned away every time at the door. Again, embarrassing the North Vietnamese terribly. So smart, but something our government never figured out. So Phyllis is instrumental in that PR campaign, particularly the TV spots, um, because she is so poised, so attractive, so smart. Um, She really captures people's imagination. From the North Vietnamese side, like what sense do we have of their that these women are obviously on their radar? Um, do we have available the evidence or the archives or the interviews to to know how, from their perspective, how these women moved the needle f- for them? No, say that one for more time. Okay, for the for the North Vietnamese, time. do we have the like the mm-hmm. evidence and archives to know the really the extent that um, these League of Wives and the POW families? So, um, moved their decision-making gotcha. as to, 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 to release them or to treat them better. Now, this is a very good point because I was not able to get into, as you would imagine, any North Vietnamese archives to, to research from that 
outside. And that is something that I wish I had been able to do. I was just okay. Future, future history, uh, PhD subject seekers, uh, the follow up to League of Wives. We need, we need a, wouldn't that be a great companion book to this? Like from the Vietnamese archival perspective. Yes. And I'd love to hear the Vietnamese women's yeah. perspective on this, you know, because they ally with the peace activists, which I don't blame the Vietnamese women at all. I mean, that would be a wonderful companion book. And I just I didn't have the context. Sure. I didn't have the way to get in. But the measurement I got came really from the inside, from the POWs themselves, from no less than John McCain who, for those who don't know, was a, you know, obviously, you probably know he was, he is now deceased, but was a senator, very, you know, ran for president, very powerful U.S. senator. And uh, he was badly injured and shot down. He was a Navy POW, almost died in prison, in Vietnamese prison during the war, would not come home unless the rest of his men came home, refused early release. John McCain, told me because he was you know there the whole time the women were operating that in 1969 out of nowhere the torture stopped it's like he said it was like a light switch going off and and in his opinion and other pow's within the prisons told me that they could see it it was like night and day he went from being in solitary to being with 25 other guys he got better food better treatment all of that and he attributed the majority of this to the wives' advocacy in the media and all the things that they were doing. They would hear, because POWs were being shot down, remember, the whole time. So the last POWs coming in, the younger ones, would tell them what the wives were doing at home. And so they would hear that, and then they noticed the torture stopped. The treatment is so much better. Now, Ho Chi Minh dying definitely has an impact on this. Not to to diminish that. But for my research, even more impact was the women and their advocacy. That changes the game. The women also demand that the 591 POWs who are eventually returned, that they must be repatriated. That is part of the peace agreement. Now, in all, that isn't the case in all wars, that all POWs are returned. But the women, one of their other big thrusts is to make sure the POWs are all returned and the MIA is accounted for best possible, and they will not support Nixon unless that is in the peace treaty. And Nixon and Kissinger make sure that's in there to please this group because they have become so powerful. So those were my measurements, um, and I would love for somebody else to go in and um, I'll come with you. Get get in those Vietnamese archives because I want to see the other side of this. But that is the American POW perception, which I thought that's was the really best measure I could get. Yeah, that's great. Did any of uh, did any of your interviewees um, mention, I was trying to do a timeline, Is this is about the time, uh, this is, mm-hmm. you were interviewing them after um, Donald Trump had said that he didn't like John McCain because he only oh. liked people who weren't captured. Uh, did that, did that <laughs> ever come oh. up as like a, as a, like a, what did they oh. think about like that kind of sentiment in particular. Okay. Well, I have to say I never, ever put political stuff on Facebook. Not one time ever. That is the one time that I just went apoplectic on my Facebook. Never, never before, never again. I don't talk politics on, I don't like to talk about that. 
that was so horrible. And yet it made that community only though for a short time, very upset. A lot of that community, you know, remember military, sure. very conservative, like they, li- they liked Donald Trump. That put a good bit of them, a, a good chunk of them completely off. But there is still a good chunk that really likes Donald Trump. So it's a, it's a, it was a bit of a tightrope to walk with the interviews because I was so apoplectic. I was like, I can't even believe this is out there. And some of them were like, oh, my God. But some of them were like, well, you know, that's Trump. So yeah, I, it, it, it disturbed me greatly. The horrible, horrible thing to say. Let's throw him in a re-education camp and see what happens. <laughs> He and has the bone spurs, you know. Right. He can. Yeah. Right. Oh, we can't. Do, we can't do it because of the bone spurs. No. Yeah. Disqualified. So one one interesting um, sort of coda on your on on so the, so the, these women are 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 successful in lobbying to to get their husbands returned to um, make that make mm-hmm. that a part of the um, a part of the peace, uh, etc. Um, what happens to them after the war? Um, you know, I think mm-hmm. for a lot of, you know, like, uh, the, like, um, like Phyllis who, um, you know, is this brilliant person and skilled negotiator, it turns out, but, but, you know, I just wanted to be a housewife before, or maybe the other, these other women who, because of social norms, um, in the sixties and seventies, like there was a very limited range of choice, but now they're on a public stage. They're like making things happen. They're running this, this NGO, uh, they're very successfully yeah. like, what, um, do you, Give us a sense of um, how, how what what happens after the war, and do some of them go on to careers um, and, and follow on? Do so they do they do they are they happy to go back to their previous sort of pre nine sixty five lives? What what happens? Oh yes, very interesting question. Um, so it, there's a variety of paths that they take. Um, Sybil is is a good example to start since she is the center of the story and such a strong person. I think it's really hard for her after the war. She has been basically president of this lobbying organization, you know, head, head covert operative, you know, all of these things that she's done. Um, and I, and she is, has depression the rest of her life, you know, and I don't think it's just the PTSD of the war. I think it's the, the loss of power and respect, you know, I mean, women want that too. Yeah. And it is very hard to back to you heading up the bake sale when you've been at the White House negotiating with Kissinger and Nixon for years. It's it's just really hard. And she writes in her book, In Love and War, she and Jim both write about missing kind of the heady days of wartime. So, you know, it'd be like somebody who was a top spy. Yes, it's life and death every day. And you adapt to that, you know? And so I think it was really much harder to go back to losing, it wasn't the power so much because getting the men back were the goal and she had achieved it, but it was losing the respect, maybe the status influence. That's the best word. Losing the influence she had. No, of course she got all kinds of awards uh, later, but then people kind of forget. Um, Then Phyllis, she really, I think enjoyed going back to being, for a while being, you know, a wife, she has two little boys who are now in their forties who I, you know, have interviewed for the book too, and, um, or had since she's passed, passed away. But, um, 
I think, you know, she and was very, she and Paul and Richmond were very, very involved. And Paul still is with many um, wonderful, like, veterans groups and different boards. She went on a board for women's finance, a bank board for women in banking. Like, she became very interested in women, women's issues. Um, but she, do, again, doesn't go back to the status she had before the war. Jane Denton, Jerry Denton, uh, you may even know he was a senator from Alabama, super duper conservative senator, and she doesn't want to do that. She feels like she shared him enough. But then she becomes a big advocate for um, those with mental health issues. So they take different paths. And and one that there's one woman that I don't say enough about in the book, Valerie Kushner, who has passed away now, but she became, you know, got very political went from a conservative military wife, came over to Mother of Jared um, the Democratic side. No, no, thank goodness, no. Um, this lady, you might remember if you've watched the Ken Burns documentary, do you remember Hal Kushner, who's the guy with the bow tie yeah. that yeah. is like the star of the Ken Burns documentary? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is his wife. She advocates huge, I mean, does huge amounts of work all across the country for him. He comes back and cheats on her with his secretary. That's the end of that Ouch. story. Really bad. So I, again, Ken Burns, you picked the wrong person for that. That was not cool. He did not do his homework. But Valerie goes on to work for the Clinton administration. She, uh, and I believe her second husband was an ambassador to, I can't remember to which country, to, but to a European country. She goes on to have a very political career on the other side of the political spectrum. So that's a good, and she's the one who stunts for okay. Senator McGovern. So there's an example of somebody who really does keep going with that. But the majority of guys really don't, um, don't get very political after that. They kind of go back to their former life, but they are much more empowered. They certainly don't put up with the stuff from their husbands they did before. They're kind of running the show now. So I like, I like that part. We we've kept you on the line for a lot, but we need to hear some uh, some good Hollywood hot gossip. Um, um, mm, not yeah. not really, but uh, but we are excited about like your <laughs> tell us about what it was like from the of your book turning into um, the makings of a Hollywood movie. Oh yes, well this is so fun. This is like I, I was couldn't believe this happened really, except that the story is so timely, but. Um, yeah, I, I have a wonderful film agent, and he read the script or the script, the proposal before I was even really done writing. I was almost done with the book. He read the proposal, read the manuscript, and was like, "Oh, yeah, I think I think I can, you know, sell this in Hollywood." And this was all happening about the same time as the Me Too movement, which you know had nothing mm-hmm. to do with my book, but. The confluence of that with this, there was so many parallels with keep quiet, go public. It it just resonated, I think, for people because of of that timing. Um, So, yeah, you know, we got a meeting, Reese read it. uh, We had a studio. It was Fox, which then got swallowed up by Disney, and we've moved over to Sony. But the same, it's an all-female team. The women at Fox have come over to Sony and they read it and Reese read it in a weekend. They loved it and they were like, we want it. So it moved very quickly. Yeah, Reese, Reese so Witherspoon's production company, does it, does it focus on, on sort of yes. women's narratives? 
Yes, it's called Hello Sunshine, and it's all women's stories, which was perfect for for me. And it, it's so wonderful to have somebody really advocating there um, for women. So she was my top choice for this. We had other people interested, but when I heard she wanted it, I was like, yes, do it. So, um, and then I'm an executive producer, so I am helping. The, I'm not writing the script, but I'm consulting on the script, and we'll be involved with yeah. the filming starts exciting. with you know trying to keep trying to keep the details yeah. straight. So it is very very exciting, and um, I've had a great great relationship with their company, and they've been wonderful to work with. So hopefully, the script is is should be done fairly soon. And then they hope to start casting and I hope we'll film maybe next year, you know, hopefully if the pandemic allows or they figure right. out how to do it, we'll get to filming pretty soon. That's really, that's really exciting. And congratulations. That's a. Uh... Thank you. Yeah. That's fantastic. If, if we could um, real quick, let's, let's just continue since we're talking uh, Hollywood for our listeners. I'm sure they want to know how, uh, how we <laughs> got in touch with each other. And it's from our shameless plug sister podcast, Napalm in the Morning. Follow us uh, at uh, Napalm Podcast. But our book of the week on our coming home movie was League of Wives. Um, do you want to just talk real quick, Keith, about... Now, I know the story, Jane Fonda's role is not exactly the same as, as these, these wives, but she is still a wife of a you know, military wife. Um, how does that, uh, how does her portrayal, I guess, um, in the film, I, how does that compute with reality from uh, your, your research? Yes, yeah. And that's how we connected originally was your uh, yeah. Napalm in the Morning. And I, you know, I love movies. I'm total like cinephile. So I've loved listening to the podcast. It is hilarious. So um, with Coming <laughs> Home, so Jane Fonda, you know, plays this, military wife who becomes involved with a Vietnam vet who has, you know, been to war, has had all these major PTSD and disabilities, et cetera. And, you know, her portrayal doesn't square exactly with mine because my wives, for the most part, remain very conservative military wives. They, they do not have affairs with veterans who have PTSD and have had you know, have legs blown off. Like that's just not the women that I deal with are much more conservative. The Jane Fonda mm. character kind of evolves though in a good way, like gets away from sort of her marriage that is super duper traditional and and frees herself a bit. So mm. that's sort of, you know, maybe the point there. My women kind of what I like better about my women is they are empowered not by the men that they're with, but by themselves. And that's what, to me, is the most gripping, is that they find the power within themselves to change. It isn't driven by a relationship with a man. It's just because they're cool and they figure everything out by studying history. They, like, take the time to learn the culture, figure mm -hmm. out to use their cultural heritage against them, which kind of in this situation is out there on the other side of the war. That's, in that's intel just, like, a secret document like what what is the southeast asian culture like what would make them come to the negotiating table and i think they're so smart in how they take the time to study the culture shame, to figure shame. out the weaknesses yeah <laughs> shame, will, <laughs> shame yeah. is huge <laughs> embarrassment is huge you know and the fact that our government 
never took the time, even though they had all these Southeast Asian specialists, which, I mean, one of the tapes I listened to was a Southeast Asian specialist the State Department brought in, and he sang songs to them the whole time that made no sense. Like, there was nobody with any real knowledge. It was just such a farce. So that's what I love about them. They empowered themselves the to change, you know, change military culture and to also rescue their husbands. They are SEAL Team Six, where our government is totally inept. That's that's literally so, why um, uh, centers for Southeast Asian studies like our like ours exist. We uh, we when the, when the film comes out, yeah. we gotta we'll we'll bring you to campus. We could uh, do like a screening or something, and yes. then we could get all these youth yes. excited about uh, about. Oh, I would Learning. love that. Yeah, no, that'd be that. That'd be great. That would be so cool. And I'll say, when you, I really want to go to Vietnam at yeah. some point. So you know, I got totally like screwed on that on this COVID thing. So tell tell please. Heath. Well, yeah, we're doing a we're planning a study abroad uh, to go there. It was supposed to be this summer <laughs> and we were going to bring uh, pow's so. or, or or combatants from both sides they were going to be on the, the the trip and we're going to go from north to south uh, it's going to be like a, oh. yeah that was a, yeah wow. you're invited yeah that's so cool yes well, please. i would love it when y'all get it together please keep me in the loop because i you know i was going to go speak about the wives yeah. and the American side. So maybe, you know, if the college wants to bring me along as a speaker, that was sort of my deal before. So yeah. tell them to tell the, we'll your, people your people to call my people. We'll you have figure to have people. <laughs> my people is me. Yeah, we don't we don't have any people, but <laughs> yeah, I don't either. It just we're the people. We the people. <laughs> we we are the people. That is it. We the people. Right. Well he, we cool. can't we can't thank you enough. Uh we really had a we had a great time and we encourage everyone to go out and get um uh, Heath Lee's League of Wives untold story of the women who took on the U.S. government to bring their husbands home. And um, don't be a stranger, and we'll uh, we'll get you back on the air. I would love it. Remember, Nixon, napalm in the morning. Right. I will be really upset You're if there. you don't fall. You're there. Thanks again. 